Thank you for joining us for another Hagley History Hangout. My name is Gregory Hargreaves, Assistant Director of the Center for the History of Business, Technology, and Society at the Hagley Museum and Library in Wilmington, Delaware. Now, you know, during these History Hangouts, we like to bring you some of the great work being done by scholars who have received support from the Hagley Center in the form of research grants and fellowships of different kinds. One such scholar joining me today is Dr. Trish Kashla, former NEH Hagley Postdoctoral Fellow and current Assistant Professor at Georgetown University, Qatar. Trish, thanks for speaking with me today. Thanks so much for having me. Oh, you're sure. You're welcome. Uh, let's start by painting with broad strokes. What is it you're researching and writing about at the moment? So right now I'm working on a new project on the history of electricity and more broadly speaking, um, the history of the work that it takes to make electrical systems operate in the most broadly conceived fashion. Could you perhaps elaborate a little bit? Is this an international context or are you focused in one place? So when I had originally applied to the Hagley to start the project, I imagined I was going to be writing about Pennsylvania um, because that's where the Hagley has records on. And mm -hmm. I think in the process of doing that, I realized it did need to be a slightly broader story. So um, from, you know, Pennsylvania and specifically central eastern Pennsylvania. So, you know, the Allentown to Harrisburg belt. Um, I've also now included Detroit, and uh, North Carolina, um, and hopefully just getting a sort of broader sense of experiences with the electric power system in the United States. Hmm. When does your story begin? So this is still, I'm uh, a little bit early on in the stages, right? So it's, I'm not at the point of having a fully formed story yet, but I, I guess there are basically two big threads. One is that a lot of the histories of the electric power system in the US focus on engineers, they focus on managers, um, and really the sort of technological side of constructing a system or the business side of constructing it. And that's, I did find that really interesting, but I was left with a lot of questions specifically about, um, you know, the people that we see working on them every day. And I'm in my head, I'm like, there are a lot of people who work on electric power systems, right? You think there are hundreds of thousands of them still, uh, everyone from the line workers you might see around, a a downed power line to people working in power stations, people doing bill collecting and meter reading, um, people doing paperwork, right? Specifically, often women doing paperwork, people doing uh, the design of charts and doing advertising. And I became really interested in trying to sort of pick apart that problem. Like, this is a really broad set of kinds of work. How do they all fit together? How is it possible that we've learned to kind of not see it, right? Mm -hmm. Given that you know, this is not a kind of labor that's happening far out of sight, out of mind, right? Mm -hmm. We've learned not to see it directly in front of us. And um, I really became interested in why that is the case. And so you could look at that in a particular temporal place or a temporal uh, focus, or you could look at it at a specific place. Um, but as I've sort of dug into it, I realized there are different episodes in this that I think are particularly illustrative of the consequences of that mm -hmm. invisibility. And so I've increasingly tried to sort of think about what are the pieces of this story um, that I think are really important. So I think the first is the actual construction of the first power grids in the United States, thinking, mm -hmm. you know, from the late uh, 19th century and thinking about people who are having to build something. They don't know what it is. Right. So imagine, right. I mean, obviously people have been living with electricity, been living with telegraphs and other things like this, but an electric power system meant to like illuminate homes and power streetcars. 
And you have to build that and you don't know what it is, right? You have to sort of bring it into being without having ever lived with it yourself. And that became a really interesting problem for me to try and think about like, what was the experience of doing that like? Um, and as I was trying to figure that out, I realized there had been a lot less research on this than I had assumed because again, thinking that these are ubiquitous workers all over the United States, I expected there to be a wide swath of literature on their work, um, their unions and things like this. And I found that there actually was not the same amount that I expected there to be. Hmm. In fact, there was shockingly little. So I didn't know basic things like how often um, do people change jobs? How long do they stay in those jobs? How much are they paid? What kind of jobs are they even doing? Um, and so Hagley has a really great collection of time books from the early 20th century that allowed me to follow like a single group of people over a long period of time hmm. and see you know, how much they were working, how much they were being paid, how often they were switching jobs, who they were, um, you know, because you get some names and you get to learn a little bit about them. Um, so that's one period, right? Sort of looking at the emergence of electric power system as something that is really ubiquitous, touching a lot of people's lives. Um, another period comes in the post-World War II period and thinking about the problem of rural electrification. Mm. Um, and that was what initially drew me to North Carolina. And when I was there, I ended up stumbling on a slightly different story. So there's the, the part about rural electrification, about extending electricity to parts of the state. Um, in the state archives there, there are records about people writing complaints to get power from a company that I'm not gonna name. And uh, I recognized that there was one place that kept coming up and I was like, I've heard this before. And lo and behold, it was also the site of a major court case against a utility company in which black workers were suing for um, being sort of stopped off on promotions. They were denied promotions by being kept in a segregated department that didn't have seniority lines. Hmm. And literature on this topic uh, spoke a lot about the implications for labor law more broadly, but didn't really consider that it was important that this was actually an electric utility and not just any old workplace that might have existed. Mm -hmm. And so when I began digging there, I saw that the story that I thought was good about rural electrification was also about race and the construction of the electric power system. Um, and particularly trying to uncover a longer history of black workers and their contribution to the electric power system, how they navigated questions of discrimination, you know, why they held on to jobs that were dead end for so long um, and sort of how those were shaped by the other options that were available to them at the time in an area where really the other options are sharecropping or textile and tobacco mills. Um, and then following that forward, right, looking at Detroit came into the story because then it is sort of the third anchor of this, which is looking at um, campaigns, uh, civil rights campaigns inside of utilities. Hmm. And that's both um, black workers, mostly in the cases that I found, as well as women um, sort of using Title VII of the 1964 Civil Rights Act to try and get these jobs. What's interesting about those suits, right, is that a lot of the ins and outs of the work and how the work has changed since that early part of the 20th century, where now you have these huge technological systems that have thousands of workers employed on them. Um, the fabric of work looks really different in the way that those work, those forms of work fit together, how people move between jobs, all of that has changed. And so uh, broadly speaking, I know that was a very roundabout and circuitous way of, and sort of talking through a project that is not fully formed yet. But I sort of see this project as sort of spanning the early years of electrification 
to the period of deregulation at the end of the 1970s. That's a period that's sort of coherent enough um, that I think it can be narrated. I think post deregulation would require a different set of sources that I don't think I've found yet. Mm -hmm. um, and trying to think about how, if we look at the electric power system from the perspective of these workers, we understand how work is shaping the electric power system. It might make us think a lot differently about uh, questions about decarbonization, about adapting mm. the grid to a climate changed future, and about thinking about questions about justice as they flow through electric power lines. Um, so that's sort of my motivations. I wish it was a little more organized at this stage, but um, it's still a very early on in the pro process project. Would it be fair to say that you're writing a social history of electric systems? I think so. Um, I am still thinking about the form of the relationship as really being about the energy. Mm. And I really, I really do want to, I, you know, I, it is social history insofar it's using the methods of social history, but it's really focusing on the way energy systems sort of hold each other, bring each other together. And that's something that's held over from my first and almost finished book, um, which is, uh, you know, looking at, was looking at that from the perspective of coal. But I think here, what I really wanted to see is that when I was looking, when if you take energy relationships seriously as a form of social relationship, that they're actually like politics, uh, social systems that are flowing along power lines, flowing along flows of fuel, um, that you also start to run up against the conceptual limits of some of the ways we think about the relationships between people and about social systems. Hmm. Um, so I'll... One of the best developed parts of this project is an article forthcoming uh, in labor, and it's looking at um, unwaged work. So this is a part of thing which is like someone who isn't formally working for a utility, but is being disciplined by them, which are housewives. Mm. Um, and so looking at the, um, the period of the 1970s, the period of energy conservation, as actually being this way of the utilities leveraging labor discipline uh, against women, working in homes, asking them to work differently. Um, I totally just lost my train of thought because it's the end of the day. I actually don't remember where I was going with this. I'm so sorry. That's okay. Um, yeah. I'd like to uh, maybe hear a little bit as well about the book project that is nearing completion. Um, you said it has to do with coal and the social relationships built around the coal-fired energy system. Yeah, and here I'm actually thinking much more explicitly about political relationships. And so mm -hmm. thinking about how do coal miners come to see their political belonging in the United States as being tied to the coal that they mine and looking at that as something that begins in the early part of the 20th century and really sort of transforms through three different versions of the coal-fired social contract. So I start by saying first, you know, you think about people like Tim Mitchell or whatever, who've sort of framed coal as being this like harbinger of mass democratic politics. And when I went back and I was actually looking at the coal fields in the 1880s to the 1920s, it's like, this doesn't look like that to me. Like I see a different story here. Mm -hmm. And what I see is, you know, people like Heber Blankenhorn, people like Lane Winthrop or Winthrop Lane, sorry, um, writing about how the coal fields pose a deep problem for the nation's democratic future, that they are so autocratic, they are so violent, and they are so inhuman that they threaten the future of the country's democracy. And Heber Blankenhorn even goes to the point of saying, we need a Missouri compromise for the coal industry, right? And he's like, is this even possible? Like you can't have an energy system that's built two thirds 
uh, autocratic and one third democratic. Like it just doesn't work. Um, and so tracing that from like, how do, do you have this sort of problem of democracy in the coal fields that they're like, we don't know if we can even continue to have a democratic country powered by coal because this is such a big problem to by the 1970s and 1980s, coal miners sort of putting themselves forward as these sort of paradigmatic citizens who are defending democracy for everyone else. And so I'm sort of tracing the long arc of how coal has shaped the country's politics, how miners' own conception of their role in the country has shaped the way people imagine rights for themselves, um, and how the country's democracy has been shaped by managing its relationship with coal miners, right? So we think a lot um, about energy policy as managing fuels, but I think when you actually go look at a lot of the policies related to coal, it's about managing the country's relationship to the coal miners. What is owed to coal miners for the risks that they take? Um, what legitimate rights do they have in terms of the roles they can play in workplace government? Um, these questions recur again and again. And I think they're, even though coal is starting to disappear, um, I think the questions they raise about the relationship between energy and political systems remain remarkably persistent. You know, how much risk can be displaced in an energy system, who can be asked to bear that risk, whether it's temporal, you know, asking people in the future to bear the consequences of our energy use today, um, whether it's spatial, right? Like, is it okay for waste and pollution and effluent to sort of go into another community or into another country? Um, and so in some ways, this new project is a continuation. That was where I was going with that, Mark, was that, you know, the way, so for example, looking at work, only as being something that is defined by a wage agreement between an employer and an employee doesn't actually capture how labor discipline is happening within the electric power system, that electric power systems are embedded in economic and they're embedded in social systems. But the categories that we have to describe those things don't necessarily describe how electric power systems work. And so there's this kind of slippage that happens where I'm like, I really want to sit with and understand how the system works on its own terms. How do people live with it? How do they relate to each other without sort of just pushing it into the categories of the economy, into the categories of the social, really thinking about how the energy moves, how people use it, what is the relationship between the people using the energy or creating the energy or directing the energy at different moments? And I think those are questions that were open to me by the first project, even though I'm asking them in really different ways. Yeah. And can we bring back that back to um, housewives doing uh, housework and being disciplined when being told to work differently or to consume electricity less? Yes. So um, basically what happens is in the 1970s, the utilities have a, they have a bunch of really big problems. <laughs> the first is that financing has gotten more expensive, right? So a lot of utilities these are very capital intensive projects. They are expensive, extremely expensive to build. But utilities have been able to do it profitably. Again, this is the US, so we're talking primarily about private electric utilities um, who are serving. There are obviously a lot of smaller municipal systems, the TBA, et cetera. But what I'm talking about are the private investor-owned power systems. They have a huge financing problem. They cannot afford to finance at the same rates that they had once been doing, or they can't get the same rates they'd once been doing, they had once been getting. Um, and so suddenly this has become much more expensive to build power plants. At the same time, they have to build power plants because people are using more and more electricity. So electricity consumption rates are doubling pretty much about every 10 years. They think that's going to continue. It doesn't actually continue, but they think it's going to. Hmm. And so they have this problem where like 
people are using uh, the electricity more quickly than they can finance it. Um, then they have a second or a third problem at this point, which is the Clean Air Act amendments of 1971. And this not only makes it difficult to continue running the plants they already have, it also makes it more expensive again to build the new ones. Now, <clears throat> they suddenly are faced with like, they need a lot more money and they are gonna need longer to build those plants. Now, a lot of companies like PPNL are looking to nuclear at this point, um, even though that the nuclear sort of promise falls away by the end of the decade. So there's a lot of expense, a lot of lead time, but in the meantime, people are consuming energy really fast. So that means they need to slow that growth down, hmm. right? So they, they can't take away the electricity, but they need to, need to slow the growth at which it's being used. In central eastern Pennsylvania, that is compounded by yet another problem, which is the problem of deindustrialization. Hmm. And um, so threats, perceiving that you're going to not have enough energy to run factories Right, portend something very different in an economy where a huge proportion of the population has lost its job um, within living memory, um, specifically in the anthracite region of Pennsylvania, which is totally in, in, uh, within this service area. Um, and so what they do is they say, well, we're going to do some industrial conservation. We're not going to advertise it. And really, it's only taken undertaken as um, a way to make companies more profitable or not intervening in the work process because a lot of times union agreements won't allow them to. Um, so it's not about reorganizing work, it's about making work more efficient. For housewives, that looks really different. So for housewives, they're making different kinds of interventions. And I found these great pamphlets that didn't say they were directed at housewives, but they pretty much might as well have been. And like one really typical one, you know, there was like a page on commercial conservation a couple of pages on masculinized activities, like making sure your car tires are inflated at the, the right scale. And then about 25 pages of how to do housework differently. Oh my! And things like what time of day should you iron clothes? Um, making sure that you're opening and closing shades with the sun. And I think in some ways, right, like this can seem like pretty small stuff, but when you compare it to home economics textbooks of the same period, mm -hmm. which are describing what a typical day for a homemaker should or might be like, um, you actually see that these energy practices, right? So let's say, you know, maintaining plants that you otherwise wouldn't have, opening and closing curtains as the sun moves, ironing in the morning to make sure that the humidity doesn't go up too much in the house, um, cooking at specific rhythms so you're conserving the energy of the stove, right? Again, all each of these on their own sound pretty small and not that big of a deal. But then when you put it in the context of these home economics books, what you see is that first, there are a lot of other pieces that the people who wrote these guidebooks who are probably also home economists working for the utilities, um, were considering things like getting kids ready for school, um, eating the, the homemaker eating her own breakfast, things like this that were often very early on in the day in the other, in the other books. Um, and another thing that became really clear is that in asking the women to conserve the appliances, they were being asked to substitute their own energy, right? This is not about making things more efficient. It's about asking someone else to do the work. It's about intervening in the work process. So um, what in effect we would see here is, right, in any other context, this would be an intervention in 
the work process, if you think about an assembly line, right, like the, the same intervention has a different meaning um, mm. because we recognize it as happening to a waged worker. Mm. Um, and so, again, looking through the lens of home economists who had spent all of this time trying to conserve homemakers' energy by making their lives easier, by getting them to apply electricity, suddenly found themselves like, no, you have to save the appliances energy instead of your own. It's time mm -hmm. to put the muscle back into it um, and you know, use your, your home appliances differently, live your life differently, do your work differently. And you can see the impact that this has because there's a really gendered distinction that emerges among the same women who are the target of this campaign. Um, and they explicitly say in their private letters, they're targeting this campaign at women and they're targeting it at girls in home economics classes and schools. Um, sorry, so you see uh, another piece of this that emerges is that when the women are asked, will you be using more electricity in five years? And when men are asked the same question, women are much less likely to think they will be using more electricity in five years than men. Mm. Every other question like, is electricity a good deal? Um, you know, does electricity make your life easier? All of these things, the answers are there's no gender disparity, no meaningful gender disparity. Only on that question of like what your future will look like, mm. is there a gender disparity? Um, and so for me, that was a really clear tell that this messaging was having some impact um, and that it was also being perceived by women as not being able to use the same amount of power that they once had for the same tasks. In public, the utilities often portrayed that electricity use as leisure, right? Like, oh, you're being more comfortable because you're using climate control or something like this. Um, but for the women who are actually working in the homes, right, these are really complex ecosystems of domestic labor. Mm -hmm. And changing even just one small thing could have a huge impact um, on their day-to-day -day lives. Was the utility promoting this as a way to, um, for um, homemakers to help their household economy or to help society on a larger uh, scale? Or are they being fully forthright and explaining this is a way to help your utility company? So they would do a little bit of all three of those things. And mm -hmm. I think the way that they combine them was particularly telling. So obviously they're communicating that you can save money by doing this, right? Using less electricity, you will save money. This is the era of high inflation. This is of course something they can imagine will connect with people who are using their service. At the same time, that's how that is actually received in public is different because the rates are also going up. So I think people are kind of skeptical of this idea, like save money by using less, but then pay the same amount because your rate has increased. Um, but in terms of the social messaging, this is really, really stark. So there's a page in one of these energy conservation booklets that says, what does the world look like if we don't have enough electricity? And if you're familiar with the tropes of sort of 1970s fears about um, the future of the nation, right? These things are really telling. So one is a boarded up maternity ward. So you can't have any more children. Um, another is a police officer standing guard over a communal plug where everyone has to wait. So very evocative of sort of the depictions of communist rationing lines and things mm -hmm. like this. Um, what are some of the other ones? Oh, there's an unemployment office, which again, particularly given, I mean, this is also a period where there are some severe recessions nationwide, but particularly given the location, I think had a particular psychological impact or were intended to have a particular psychological impact. And so there was really, and then there was finally um, the power company turning the big switch off for everybody. And so those were sort of the portended futures. 
that could happen. And then the other was that they did actually frame this directly in relationship to the viability of the utilities saying, you know, if you don't have us, you'll have socialism, right? So um, that's one piece of it. And then like, you know, we're doing all that we can, but it's just these pesky environmental regulations. And like, can you just help us out until we can like get this finance, get it figured out? So I think there is this sort of appeal of like, they are trying to portray themselves like, we're really trying to help you, please, uh, you know, help us out as well. You're doing your part for the um, community to make sure like schools and hospitals don't have to go without electricity. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, they're, they're sort of doing all three of those at once. Mm -hmm. And I'm wondering uh, what role did your NEH Hagley postdoc have in your professional development? Yeah, I mean, it played a huge role um, because I don't think I would have been able to get six months of sustained archival work. Um, the utility records are, you know, and I think there's a, a great recent book on PPA or PG&E in California um, where the, the author talks about obfuscation by enormity, right? That there are so many documents that the real story gets obscured. Mm -hmm. um, and I think, you know, the two collections I was looking at, you know, there's the finding aid for one is over a thousand pages long. Um, the other one is not quite that long, but it's still pretty long. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, given that there wasn't as much to work on, right, I was really like, I need to go find the story here. Like, what is, I like, I know this is here, but I don't know exactly what I'm looking for or where it's going to be. And so, like, I didn't go in thinking I was going to scan 10 years worth of time books, right? But like, that's the kind of thing that the Hagley Fellowship allows you to do is to stand in the archive every day and like scan all of these time books to PDF. And I've been able to use this stuff really great actually in my teaching. Um, right. By like teaching students. So I had this one great day in the archive where I'm like flipping through these timesheets and all of a sudden, you know, I'm just going really quickly, but all of a sudden I feel something and I'm like, wait, something is weird here. And it's a strip that's been laid over everyone's wage amounts. And so I kind of like go back and I look and I realized that there was a huge story in this thing that looked like this, you know, kind of banal piece of ephemera. And what had happened was like somebody got fired on the second day of the month and then everyone else quit. And then the people, the couple of people who had stayed got a raise and then they had to hire a bunch of new people who all then were hired at a higher pay scale. Huh. But I only found that because again, I had the time to sort of go through and like flip through every single one of these like thousands of pages and find this sort of weird thing. And trying to explain that to students about the value of archival work mm -hmm. um, was really fantastic. And so I think, you know, sort of being at the point, like I was at a really great point where I'd finished my first draft of the, of the first book and that was sort of out for peer review while I was at the Hagley. And so I had like this sort of six months where I'm like freedom to really just like think in archives, which I think is such a rare opportunity um, for anyone to get anymore. So I just feel really privileged to have had the opportunity. Oh, that's wonderful. Oh, well, Trish, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me today. It's been really great. Okay, thank you so much. You're welcome. And for the audience, if you would like more Hagley History Hangouts, more information on the Center for the History of Business, Technology, and Society, the Hagley Museum and Library, join us online. You can visit hagley.org. That's H-A-G-L-E-Y. Dot .org don't be a stranger